Hey everyone, and welcome back to this week's episode of Caffeine and Cats, a creepy podcast. I'm your co-host Lou, along with Caitlin and Abby. Before we get started, we wanted to remind you to follow us on social media. You can find us at Caffeine and Cats Pod on Instagram and Caffeine and Cats Podcast on Facebook. Give us a like and leave us a review if you enjoy hearing our stories. Finally, I would like to give a friendlier content warning that today's stories contain mention of body mutilation and murder. With that, why don't we go ahead and get started? All right, this is Caitlin, and I'm going to be starting with you guys today. But first, I want to ask how everybody's doing. Pretty good, actually. I'm looking forward to a short week next week. So, um, yeah, I'm pretty good. Same here. Hey, Lou? Uh, yeah, yeah, same here, actually. I was going to say I'm going to have a, a short week because uh, Monday is a holiday, although I do have to work a bit, but it's good. Ew, okay. So <laughs> hold on to those good feelings because this is going to get a little dark. Oh, okay. Oh, no. <laughs> so what I'm covering today is the Cleveland Torso Murderer. In the 1930s, Cleveland was quickly becoming a powerful steel and manufacturing location. Millionaire's Row was in its heyday, and several important expositions and conventions were planned for the coming years. Despite the Great Depression, residents were starting to get back on their feet. It was in this setting that one of the most prolific and gruesome serial killers was carrying out his attacks, leaving Cleveland in a constant state of fear. This case goes by a few names. The Cleveland Torso Murderers, the Cleveland Torso Murders, the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run, and the Kingsbury Run Murders. And just for a little location information, Kingsbury Run is a prehistoric riverbed that runs from the flats to about East 90th Street. The train and rapid transit tracks there still run to this day. In 1930 and in the following decade, Kingsbury Run was a dangerous and depressing area. Homeless residents lived in dreadful conditions dubbed the Hobo Jungle. Many of the people were transients that often rode the rails to get away from the freezing Cleveland winters or just to escape. Another important location was the Roaring Third. The Roaring Third was an area just east of Kingsbury Run. It was filled with bars, brothels, flop houses, and gambling dens. This is where our story begins. In September 1934, the lower half of a woman's torso was found washed up on the shores of Lake Erie. Her thighs were still attached but amputated at the knees. Her skin had some kind of chemical preservative which left it red, leathery, and tough. The resulting search led to only a few more body parts being found. Her head was never found. Although she was never identified, she became known as the Lady of the Lake. It would take another two years before she became also known as victim number zero. September 1935, two teenage boys find a headless, emasculated corpse of a white male at the bottom of Jackass Hill. The body was nude, excluding a pair of socks, and had been cleaned and drained of blood. There were also rope burns on both wrists. Using his fingerprints, they were able to identify him as Edward Adrassi, a 28-year-old local with an arrest warrant. A second body was found close by, also headless and emasculated, seemingly covered in the same chemicals as the Lady of the Lake. The 40-ish-year-old male was never identified. Half of a woman's body was found in January 1936. She had been carefully wrapped in newspaper and placed in two half-bushel baskets. She was left outside of the Hart Manufacturing Building on Central Avenue. Everything except her head was found 10 days later. Her cause of death was decapitation. Her fingerprints identified her as Florence Polio, a waitress, barmaid, and sex worker who lived on the edge of the Roaring Third. 
June 1936 leads to two young boys discovering the severed head of a white male wrapped in a pair of pants near the East 55th Street Bridge. His body was found dumped in front of the Nickel Plate Railroad Police Station the next day. It had been cleaned and drained of blood. His cause of death was also decapitation. Despite being able to fingerprint him in his distinct tattoos, of which he had six, the 20-something-year-old was never identified. He became known simply as the Tattooed Man. The police even made a tattoo chart in hope of getting him identified, and that photo is still available to this day, so I'll be posting that on our social medias. Oh my gosh, how sad. I know, can you imagine? It's so sad that some people haven't been identified, and also, can I just note how sad it is for, like, all the kids that have been finding these body parts? Yeah. Like, that had to be traumatizing. For sure. When I was reading through it, like, it gave details of pretty much who found every single body part, and majority of the time it was a young person. It's just, can you imagine? No. So, following that, in July 1936, a teenage girl finds a decapitated corpse of a 40-ish-year-old man while walking in the woods near Clinton Road and Big Creek. He had been dead for about two months, and his head, along with a pile of bloody clothes, were found nearby. An enormous amount of blood had soaked into the ground around him, indicating that he had been killed where he was found. He was never identified. Following that, in September 1936, a transit trips over the upper half of a man's torso as he is trying to hop a train on the East 37th Street. The police sent a diver into a nearby pool, which was basically just a dumping ground, evidently not really a swimming pool to recover the lower half of his torso and part of his legs. The victim was in his 20s and his cause of death was once again decapitation. He has never been identified. It was at this time that the Cleveland mayor, Harold Burton, appointed Elliot Ness onto the case. The police department also placed two detectives, Peter Merlot and Martin Zalewski, on the case. By the end of the murder spree, the two detectives alone had interviewed over 1,500 people. Wow. Yeah, it was a lot of people and still... Yeah, that had to be very time-consuming. Yeah, I don't have the actual number written down, but there was a number for everybody they'd interviewed total, not just the detectives, and it was thousands of people. Damn. So following that, in February 1937, the upper half of a woman's torso washes up on the shore of Lake Erie. Unlike all the victims before, the cause of death had not been decapitation, as her head had been removed post-mortem. The lower half of her torso washed up three months later. The 20-something-year-old has never been identified. And following that, because it just keeps going and keeps going. It's so sad. And all of these unidentified bodies, you know, no, their families don't know what happened to them. And that's the thing. Like, I understand it was in the 30s, but that really wasn't that long ago. No. Like, it could easily be relatives of people that are still alive now. And I have a question. Uh, they're all found near or on water, right? Um, so far, yes, mm-hmm. but that'll change. Okay. So you'll we'll hear that part. <laughs> okay, okay. So following that, in June 1937, a human skull is found under the Loring Carnegie Bridge. A burlap bag with the rest of the skeleton of a 40-ish-year-old black woman was found next to it. She was later identified as Rose Wallace, and unfortunately, I couldn't find any more information about her. In July 1937, labor disputes within the city caused the National Guard to be called in. A young guardsman standing watch near the Third Street Bridge spotted the first part of victim nine, 
Over the following days, the police recovered the rest of the body, excluding the head from the Kaga River. The admin, admin, excuse me about that one, abdomen had been gutted and his heart had been ripped out. The 30-something-year-old has never been identified. April 1938. A young laborer thinks he sees a dead fish on the river's edge. Surprise, it was the lower half of a woman's leg and the first part of victim number 10. A month later, police pulled two burlap bags out of the river. The bags contained parts of the torso and most of the legs of victim number 10. For the first time, drugs were detected within the victim. Police were unsure if she was an addict or if the killer had used drugs to subdue her. And they were waiting for the arms to show up so they could see if there were needle points or maybe try to figure out, but those never showed up. She has also never been identified. So, August 16th, 1938. Scrappers going through a dump site at East 9th and Lakeside find a woman's torso. The torso had been wrapped in a man's double-breasted blue blazer, then wrapped again in an old blanket. Her arms and legs were found in a makeshift box, which had been wrapped in butcher paper and held together with rubber bands. There were even signs of refrigeration, which was new. Police then discovered a second body a couple yards away. The corpses had been placed in plain sight of Elliot Ness's office window, almost as if the killer was taunting him. Victim 11 and 12 have never been identified. So, following that, two days later, August 18, 1938, at 12.40 a.m., Elliot Ness and 35 officers and detectives raided the hobo jungle. They ended up gathering 63 men. At dawn, they searched the now-deserted area for more clues. After not finding anything, Ness gave the order to burn all the shanties down. They were then set on fire and destroyed. He was severely criticized for this order, and rightfully so but the murders did stop after this dramatic move. So after that, there were no more victims that were tied to the Cleveland Torso murderer. That's interesting. I mean, I was thinking maybe it was an actual butcher, um, but if after they raided the hobo jungle, it stopped, something must have happened. Right. Yeah, and that's the thing, like, because when this had happened, people were going after Ness saying basically, what was the point of this and we still see this kind of today with like the homeless population how they build in like the anti-homeless benches and stuff like that so they don't have places to sleep but whatever it was the murders did stop that was the last murder or the last bodies found were two days before this happened i still don't think it was a hobo i mean i don't think it was a hobo because even if it was like where is they where are they taking this body to like surgery on them basically right exactly and clean all it just doesn't make sense and get the paper yeah i'm i'm curious you know there's they have no way to clean up it kind of like how would they hide that there's no way to hide that if you're homeless yeah and just the technology they would have hand to drain these people of their blood and clean them up right and when I imagine the hobo jungle, which is how they say it, that's not the word I came up with. Um, I just imagine like very cramped quarters, like there's not a whole lot of privacy. The shelters are very flimsy, like you're going to hear people screaming or something, you know? Right. I'm imagining people like elbow to elbow. Yeah, it's got to be close by. So here's the kind of fun part. Who was the murderer? So the first suspect that 
is involved in this case and spoken about is Frank Dozell, who was arrested in July 1939. 50-year-old bricklayer, and he was arrested for the murder of Flo Polio, which was one of our earlier victims. He had lived with Flo for a while, but not for a very long time. He did confess, but upon review, it seemed that his confession was highly coached. Before his trial, he was found hanging in his jail cell from a hook that was five feet, seven inches off the floor. Dozell himself was five foot eight and also had six broken ribs. So it seems very unlikely that he committed suicide on his own. Um, interestingly enough, he was the only person ever arrested in the case. So, wow. I know, right? And then our second subject that was a possible suspect would be Dr. Francis E. Sweeney. And he was later identified as a secret subject that Ness had interrogated in 1938. He, however, committed himself to a psych hospital in 1938. And the evidence surrounding his involvement with the case is very circumstantial. And then the third theory I was able to find was that there might have been multiple murderers active in the same area at the same time, which... Like, sorry, like copycats? Maybe. Huh. Maybe well, copycats. Just also serial killers operating at the same time? Maybe, but considering how similar every single murder was, I think that's super unlikely. Yeah, that does not seem very likely at all. Because this isn't just people like being strangled and left around alone. Like this is people that are being mutilated in very specific ways over a course of years. So it's possible. I just don't see it very likely. And even after researching, that was the best I could find for suspects. So really nobody knows what they're going to do or who did it. So do you know if with today's technology, they're at all have any little bit of evidence that they could test or get any information from? I mean, just the way that, you know, science has evolved. Did you see any mention of that anywhere? So I saw a mention of possibly DNA testing um, Sweeney. Um, I don't know where it ever went because the article I had originally read it from was over a decade old. Gotcha. So I was I'm just assuming... curious with how everything has changed. Maybe sometime in the future, we will hear something about that. And that would be great because this is one of the longest standing, um, at least local murders that have gone unsolved and considering how much went into it, how much like research and how many people they interviewed for this case. To me, it's just mind blowing that they don't have anything at the end of this. Right. How many man hours went into that? And this is what they have to show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I just I can't understand. And I really wanted to know because not knowing drives me crazy. <laughs> but also but, like you said this was not so long ago no i mean the 30s but i mean my grandfather was born in like the late 1800s so at this point he was like 40 years old <laughs> so like when i think of it that way which yeah he's long dead but still it wasn't that long ago um and most of the sources i used for this were the cleveland police museum Com. They had a really good article on it where I got the majority of my information. Also, wikipedia.com and cleveland.com. That's good. They had a lot of information. Oh, there was plenty. And mm -hmm. I really like the Cleveland Police Museum just because that was more fact-based and less rumor-based. So that was a really good um, 
to source and I didn't even realize there was a police museum in Cleveland so I'm definitely going to be hitting that up soon yeah that would definitely be interesting to check out maybe we should go on a road trip yes let's do it we'll meet you there Lou I'll try (laughs) (laughs) we'll take pictures for you oh that that will be nice but on that note um abby has a case that's a little bit more satisfying because we actually know some information about it so i'm going to hand it on over to you abby well thank you i don't know how satisfying it is because it is a little gruesome however we it is a solved case so there's closure there at least Um, but if you guys listened last week then you heard me mention ed gain as a possible person of interest in the disappearance of evelyn hartley i thought this week i could go ahead and dive right in and tell you all about him though to fully understand him i think we need to start at his childhood just because that makes that helps you understand him as a person and a little bit of the psychology behind him. Edward Theodore Gain was born in 1906 in La Crosse County, Wisconsin to a mother, father, and an older brother named Henry. Ed's father, George, could not keep a job, and from what I read, he was an alcoholic. Ed's mother, Augusta, hated George for this. And then at one point, George did own a local grocery store, though after a few years, the business was sold and the family relocated to an isolated farm, a very large farm. It was about 155 acres located in Plainfield, Wisconsin. And this is where the Gein family would live permanently. Augusta was very religious and she would not let anyone from outside their farm influence Ed and Henry. Really, the only time Ed even left the farm was to go to school. They didn't see anyone else. They didn't really have any influence of the culture or anything like that. Um, And Augusta would tell the boys every day about the evils of the world, including how bad drinking was and that every woman besides her were instruments of the devil. And then uh, former classmates actually described Ed Gein as a shy and strange person. And sometimes he would laugh awkwardly to himself, like he told himself a joke, but nobody really knew why. Um, And despite all of this, he actually did fairly well in school and he excelled in reading. So fast forward to April of 1940, when Ed's father, George, died of heart failure at the age of 66. Um, This is said to be caused by his alcoholism. So at this point, Henry and Ed would do jobs around town to make money to support the family, and they were actually considered reliable and honest to most people. In addition to the handiwork that they would do, Ed actually babysat for families in the community as well. Um, It seemed like he enjoyed babysitting because he got along better with kids than he did with adults. So then in May of 1944, so four years later, uh, Ed and Henry were working on their property, including burning away some marsh vegetation. And at one point, the fire became too much to handle, a little bigger than they expected, so they had to call the fire department. It took almost all day to get it under control, but finally it was, and Ed realized that his brother had gone missing, and he actually reported him missing. Um, So there was a search party and everything, but he was later found lying face down and had been dead for some time. The initial report said that it was heart failure. However, there's later reports saying that he had bruises on his head. The police didn't have an official investigation, although Henry's cause of death was listed as asphyxiation. So there wasn't, that didn't really go anywhere else. Um, You know, there wasn't anyone charged or anything like that. So at this point, it's just Ed and his mother, Augusta, though Augusta eventually dies in December of 1945. So after Augusta dies, Ed continues to do odd jobs and stayed on the family's farm. However, I will say that I find this very odd. He boarded up all the rooms that his mom used and he never touched them again. So any room like her bedroom and the rooms that she sat in and worked in, he just boarded them up and never touched them. They stayed pristine. 
but the rooms that he lived in were sort of like in squalor like it was a terrible mess um, and then sometime between 1946 and 1956, he sold 80 acres of land that his brother owned. Um, I'm assuming he probably needed the money. Um, and so he mostly went unnoticed. He was pretty quiet, kept his head down until November 16th of 1957. And this is when Bernice Warden, the owner of a local hardware store, disappeared. And Bernice's son, Frank, showed up to the store on that day around 5 p.m. to find bloodstains and the cash drawer open. Uh, a receipt found that Ed was last customer in the store and that he was due back to pick up some antifreeze the next morning. However, that very same day, Ed was arrested at a grocery store and his farm was searched. So during the search was when the Washera County sheriffs were searching and they discovered Bernice Warden's decapitated body in a shed on his property. She was hung upside down by her legs with a crossbar at her ankles and ropes at her wrists. It said that she was skinned like a deer. Um, so she was, the report says that she was first shot with a rifle and then the mutilations happened after her death. So during the investigation, Ed Gein told investigators that between 1947 and 1952, he went to at least, four, on at least 40 different occasions, he went to different graveyards at night. He would exhume recently buried bodies while in a quoted days-like state. Sometimes he says he would snap out of these days like states, but other times he would take the body of a middle-aged woman that resembled his mom home. And these were always bodies that were like recently um, buried. So they were never old corpses. They were fairly, you know, new. So they were easy for him to dig up. So he would tan their skins and make his quote unquote paraphernalia. I'm, I'm really grossed out by it. So I'm, I'll, I'm gonna tell you guys about a few things that they found. Um, but mostly I will probably just link the list on our social media because it is a little gruesome. So they found different items made out of human skin, like a wastebasket made out of human skin, including um, chair covers. They found skulls that were made to use like bowls. And then they also, um, this is a pretty famous one that people know about when you talk here at Gein, is that he had a belt made from hu uh, female human nipples. So they did find Bernice Warden's entire head in a burlap sack, and also her heart was in a plastic bag in front of his stove. Oh. I'm just, this so grosses me out. <laughs> so right. I'm going to go ahead. There's, there's a whole list of what they found. I'm going to go ahead and link that on our social media. So you guys, if you're interested, you can read it. If not, I don't blame you. Um, <laughs> so oh, he I'm was sorry. definitely no, no, he was definitely not into fashion or too much into fashion <laughs> to have that. No. So his goal was to actually make a woman's suit so he could become his mother and quite literally crawl into her skin. Oh, <laughs> Yes. A bit of mommy issues, if you ask me. I was just going to say, if that's not mommy issues, I do not know what is. Right. Um, but at some point during the questioning, he does admit to the murder of Mary Hogan, who's a local bar owner, whose head and mutilated body was found in his house. Although later on, he denies any involvement or memory of her death, which that's a little hard to deny when her body parts were found in your home. However... Anyway, so he was considered a suspect in a lot of missing person cases, including Evelyn Hartley, like we talked about last week. Um, and he had quite the trial. He pled not guilty and was actually diagnosed with schizophrenia. So they later held a trial without a jury and he was found guilty there. And then he also had a second trial as well where he was found. So he it was dealt with his sanity in the second trial and he was found 
not guilty by reason of insanity, but ordered uh, to live in a mental health institute. So he was admitted into Central State Hospital for the criminally insane, but later on he would move to Mendota Mental Health Institute where he died from lung cancer, initially respiratory failure, secondary to lung cancer at the age of 77. So I'm, yeah, if you guys are familiar with any movies like Psycho, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Silence of the Lambs, his story actually inspired those. I mean, there's, I didn't realize how many, but there's a lot of books and movies that are inspired by him. So he's definitely um, quite a character. What do you need? He was definitely crazy. Like, I'm not going to doubt that. Oh, yeah. I don't doubt that one bit. He definitely, I'm glad that he lived in a mental institute. I don't, you know. I, I don't doubt that he was insane by any means. Man, this just, yeah, that's always a heavy hitter of a story. Yeah, it is. But he was caught. So um, they did, I, one thing I didn't add, um, they did end up digging up nine remains um, of people who he had dug up from the cemeteries. So he they found the nine remains plus the two women that he murdered that they found the parts for those are the ones that we know of but of course like i said there's other ones that he is a suspect in right i was going to ask you that i mean what's the toll between uh, bodies that he took from the cemetery and actual people that he killed right Um, so right mm -hmm. now it just seems that we know of two murders and then nine corpses that he mutilated damn But yeah, so I hope you guys enjoyed listening to our stories. If you have any comments or even suggestions on future episodes we should do, please reach out to us at caffeineandcatspod at gmail.com. And I hope you guys have a great week. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.